How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Bearded Ecclesiologian podcast, episode number 16, 16, sweet 16. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Remember to do all those things that I say at the end of the every episode with the with the subscribing and the sharing and the rating and the reviewing and the, all that, okay? This, of course, is the podcast in which we talk about all things church because we need more teaching about the church and not less. Well, I'm here. You're here. My beard is here. And today I am drinking this energy drink called Rain, R-E-I-G-N, and it says it's total body fuel because like Dwight said on the office if you want to win you gotta fuel like a winner that's what I'm doing you guys fueling like a winner this is white gummy bear flavored and it's delicious there is zero sugar per can and it is uh has natural caffeine in it increased concentration I don't know why I'm telling you guys this they don't they don't sponsor me just like Coke Zero refuses to sponsor me. And so, let's move on. You know, typically, I've been recording these podcasts every other week. And I did a po- I did an episode last week. And we're going to continue to do every other week. But I decided today I would record another episode because I had a little window of time. And I felt like it. Okay? I just, I felt like it, you guys. Because I love talking about the church. I love me some ecclesiology. So let's get to it. Now, last couple episodes, we've been talking about common objections to church. Whether that be membership or attendance itself. The first objection, these are common objections that we hear in culture with other Christians I've heard. The first one was about, uh, you know, I could be a Christian without the church I, I could do my Christian life without the church I don't I don't need it and we obliterated as I peek my mic we obliterated that objection and then last week of course we talked about the church um, is not a building it's a people and so we we utterly utterly just just ruined that one too now Let's talk about objection number three. And this one, boy, oh boy, is this a common objection to church. And it goes a little something like this. Didn't Jesus say that we're two or three are gathered in my name that he is with them? Didn't he say that? And since he said that, doesn't that mean that I can be a Christian and do church with two or three friends over coffee? Or six or seven of my friends doing a Bible study on a weeknight. 
isn't Jesus promising that he would be with us if there are simply two or more Christians gathering together in his name? So you have heard this, I bet. I have heard this a lot. I have seen it on the interweb machine. Um, In fact, I want to read you a quote from this just terrible article, you guys, where this person is arguing for why they don't need the church. Um, Not, you know, it's, it's that classic argument of I don't need, you know, this institution and, uh, I don't need these, uh, organized religion, you know, kind of arguments. Well, this is what they said. (laughs) And I quote, I know many people who live outside those structures and find not only an ever-deepening relationship with God, but also connections with other believers that run far deeper than any found in the institution. I haven't lost any of my passion for Jesus or my affection for his church. If anything, those have grown by leaps and bounds in recent years. Scripture does recognize us to be devoted to one another and not committed to an institution. Jesus indicated that whenever two or three people get together, there it is, focused on him, they would have they would experience the vitality of church life. Okay, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat that last one without the weird accent. Jesus indicated that whenever two or three people get together, focused on him, they would experience the vitality of church life. Okay, so that's the argument here. Okay, this is the objection. I don't need the established church. I don't need um, this thing called church, right? Because, and they use a, a scripture verse, specifically Matthew 18, 20, saying Jesus promised his presence wherever two or three are gathered in my name. This person that I just quoted goes so far as to say that Jesus indicates that whenever two or three people get together focused on him, they would experience the vitality of church life. Okay? So any of these, you know, you can have this free-floating spirituality um, where you could define the church kind of for yourself, you know. Um, Whatever suits you, coffee with friends, Bible study uh, over tea and and, and biscuits, um, or, you know, on a video screen, or if it's just, if you're gathering with anybody else in the name of Jesus, this is the equivalent to church. Uh, D.A. Carson uses this example. He says, two Christian businessmen meet on the platform of Libertyville Metra station to commute to work in downtown Chicago. On the train, they enjoy a quiet Bible study together. Here, surely, is the church. Did not Jesus say that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he himself is present in their midst? And he's using this. D.A. Carson's not making this argument. He's just using his example kind of as a setup before he knocks it down in this very good article that he wrote for um, TGC. Now, 
This one is not that hard to get through, okay, and to kind of knock it completely down. Now, you know as well as I do that no Bible verse exists in isolation, right? Matthew 18, 20 means that in that very chapter alone, 19 verses came before it, right? It means in that book alone, 17 chapters came before it. And so we must, must consider context when we are using Bible verses, all right? You can't just pluck them out of context and apply them any which way that we see fit, okay? Uh, in biblical interpretation, like real estate, you know, in real estate, they say that uh, the key in real estate is location, location, location. And so when we are thinking about biblical interpretation, the three keys are context, context, and context, you guys. So I want to read you the passage in context, and then let's talk about it a little bit. And then, uh, like we've been doing the last couple of times, I'll have questions um, that we could ask somebody who would uh, put forth this argument. So here is the passage, Matthew 18. I'm going to read you uh, 18, 15 through 20, because they are a paragraph together. And that's typically how, if we, you know, if we were going to preach this text, we would take the paragraph together. It says it's a thought. All right. Listen to what it says. And I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. Matthew 18, starting verse 15. If your brother sins, sins uh, go and show him. Now, you, you notice I, I read that funny because in other translations, it says if your brother sins against you. And that's kind of the natural impulse to say against you but the new american standard drops against you because against you is not in the earliest and best manuscripts and so they drop that completely um, which sort of alters the meaning of the text it's not just if somebody has a defense against you personally it's if they're in ongoing and unrepentant sin then um, you can go to them as a brother because you are family or sister in christ and confront them in their sin lovingly uh, rebuking them but if your brother let me read again if your brother sins go and show him his fault in private if he listens to you you have won your brother but if he does not listen to you take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For... Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay, so you see that Matthew 18, verse 20, the setting of that context. 
Do you see it, you guys? Do you see it? Now, this is the context of church discipline. Or, you know, put it uh, in a more positive light, restoration, right? And so, if we're going to correctly see verse 20, we have to set in that context of discipline or correction or restoration, right? We've looked at Matthew 18 before on this podcast in previous episodes to talk about how, hey, if you can be put out of a church, that means you must have been recognized as in in the first place, right? And so here's the step-by-step guy that Jesus says about how to handle uh, a brother who is in ongoing and unrepentant sin who's recognized as inside the church because Jesus sees that there's a clear line of distinction between how the world behaves and how the church behaves. And he cares about this. If your brother sins, you can go because you have this kind of relationship and you, you know, your brother and you have submitted to the authority of the church and to one another. And so just by virtue of your covenanting with them, by virtue of your membership. So you go to them in private because the goal here is to settle it on the lowest uh, you know, the lowest level possible where the least amount of people will know possible, right? And so you go tell them in private and Jesus says, if they listen to you and they repent, then that's it, right? You've won your brother. You've, you've, you've completed the task. You, they saw their sin. They repented of their sin. They have been restored and we move on with our lives. But says Jesus, you know, there's a possibility that they won't listen to you. So what you should do is you take two or one or two more with you. Um, and he uses, and he quotes, um, old Testament scripture to talk about, you know, the, uh, witnessing, you know, it's come from Deuteronomy 1915, the president of using a witness so that w- what you're saying about this brother, what the unrepentant ongoing sin for one it's not just made up by you, right? It's not like a, a fault-finding mission, and it's actually a sin, right? And so, secondly, um, they can be witness to whether this person repents or not, right? And so, the two or three mentioned first, or one or two, um, has to do with witnessing to this brother uh, whether it's truly sin and whether they truly repent. So, if that doesn't work, right... Um, and they don't repent, then you are to tell it to the church and the church can render judgment because they have the keys to the kingdom and they have the power to bind and loose, right? They have authority by Christ on earth. The church gathered does that local church does. Um, he, heaven is behind them and, um, them rendering judgments in accordance with scripture and through the leadership of the Holy spirit. So if the, the, the person who is in sin, the member, refuses um, to listen even to the church, then you are to remove them from the church. You are to treat them like they are an unbeliever. Again, you are, remember uh, this past tense, right? Uh, in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been be- loosed in heaven, right? So you are. You are not making judgments on whether or not somebody is a Christian or not. When you accept somebody into a membership or remove them from membership, you are saying, as far as we can tell, 
right? By observing their life and their confession, we believe that they're a Christian or not. So when you remove somebody from church and you treat them like they're a Gentile and tax collector, that doesn't mean you believe them that you are you are rendering a judgment for their damnation, right? Like the church doesn't have that kind of authority. What you're saying is simply we can no longer, uh, you know, affirm your salvation by the fact that you have rejected the authority of the church. You are an ongoing unrepentance and you don't seem bothered by it. Well, anyway, the next verse 19, I say to you that if two or three uh, of you agree about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven also. So again, this is still in the context of church discipline. And so then we have four or two or three have gathered together in my name. I am there in their midst. So we're talking about, I'm going to read you, um, Edward Clink talks about this. He says, in light of the context, verse 20 can be correctly viewed as a summarizing statement regarding the ministry of church discipline and reconciliation among Christians in a local church. They've given further insight into the need for two or three Christians since it addresses the need for a unified witness for the establishment of evidence. The context makes clear that it is not a magical number gathered together that makes Christ present, but that a symptom of church, Christ's authoritative presence in the church is a proper handling of sin in a local church. Further, the phrase in verse 20, two or three are gathered in my name, is another way of saying if two of you agree on earth about anything in verse 19. That is, the phrase in verse 20 is simply paraphrasing, extrapolating, or commentating on what verse 19 has already said. And so this is about agreeing on discipline and the witnesses. So Jesus has, the, the, or the church has the backing of Jesus when they carry out these discipline matters, right? As they gather and remove them everywhere, they consider the evidence and with tears cast out the offender with the authority of heaven behind them, Matthew 18, 18. And this binding and loosing refers to the judicial authority of gathered Christians to decide cases on the basis of God's law and by removing an unrepentant sinner from Jesus' community, believers merely ratify the heavens, court, heavenly courtly court, heavenly court's decree. Jesus makes clear, not only does the church render judicial decisions in concert with heaven, they do so with Jesus' very presence in their midst. With Jesus' presence, authority, and instruction, the church thus lives out what it means to be a church that implements membership as it was intended. And so what far from being, you know, the <laughs> Matthew 18, 20 being a, if two or three gathered, you're a church, you know, um, it's actually in the context of church discipline. I am there. If you gather in my name, right. And you render this decision, you have my backing, right? Like I got your back if you do it in accordance with the word um that's what this is saying that's the context of this you know and and again do we consider context think about the mere fact 
that Matthew 18, 20, what's the first word of the verse? You know what it is? It's for. F-O-R. For. And so you don't start a, a, a verse that's meant to be in isolation with for, right? It, it, it For signifies that something came before it, right? And clearly the context of church discipline. And so you get, you, you guys, you're smart. You get the picture. And so here's some things that I would want to ask somebody who uh, is saying this, all right? I would... <laughs> I think the first one has to be... What do you mean... And this has been the... Uh, this has been, you know, the... Question we've asked on the first two objections... What do you mean when you're talking about what do you what do you mean by that word church? What what do you mean by church? If you say where two or three are gathered in my name means if I have coffee with my friends on Thursday night and there's seven of us, that's equivalent to gathering with a local church. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by church? Where do you get your definition of church? Because I'm afraid that this 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 argument is made as a way of just trying to justify not going to church, you know? Because again, if church is whatever I make it and I can be defined in any way that I want, then I could cast off authority. I don't have to submit to a church. I don't have to submit to leadership. And I could be church in whatever way suits me at the time. It's a very convenient way of living life and, and trying to redefine what church is. Because remember, and you heard me say it a bunch of times, the word church in the New Testament means a very specific, important thing. Ecclesia means assembly. It means a gathering of uh, redeemed of God, right? They, they are gathered they are assembled and that word ecclesia almost every time it's used in the new testament refers to a local church almost every single time okay so what do they mean by church what do they mean by this let me i want to i want to want to want to uh quote da carson again he's Suppose we attempt a definition of church that is far more in integrative that depends on cautious and careful inference drawn from the wide range of the use of ecclesia in the Greek Bible and from other passages that contribute to the theme of the church, even where the word ecclesia is not found. How would our two businessmen on Metro train look then? And then a little bit later, he says the church has the authority to excommunicate the guilty party. When he's talking about Matthew, he goes through the process of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. In the concrete case of discipline portrayed in 1 Corinthians 5, the crucial step is taken when you are assembled. Did you get that? Tell it to the church, he says, does not mean tell it to two Christian blokes on the Metra train. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Um, so question what do you mean by church 
Now here I think is one of the most important questions or things that I would say to this if somebody told me this. <laughs> yes, it says where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. That says that, right? So for for one, of course it's true that Jesus is there when two, two or three Christians get together. Like, if Jesus promised his presence to us, right, as Christians, he is everywhere we are. So where one Christian is gathered in his name, Jesus is there, right? It's not like uh, two Christians... Two or three Christians gather, and they're like, okay, we're gathered in Jesus' name, and then Jesus, like, appears, right? He's like, okay, are there? He's like, you know, I, like, picture him at the door, like, looking at, like, popping his head in, like, did you guys, did you guys reach the quorum yet? You know? And then we're like, yes, Jesus, there's three of us here, and we're all Christians. And he's like, okay, well, then I could come, you know? Um, that's silly. Where one is gathered in Jesus' name, he's there. But now here, I think, is one of the most slam-dunk arguments. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say there is a church. So what I mean by that is it says where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there. Not for where two or three have gathered in my name, that is a church. Right? He does not say that. It doesn't say that at all. I am there. Not there is a church. You see? And so another question would be, okay, so you, 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 friend, you, you've quoted Matthew eighteen twenty. Indeed, it is in the Bible. Um, think about the context. I would say let let's look up. Uh, you know, if you had a Bible on hand, or you could open your Bible on Bible app on your phone, and you said let's let's just look real quick. You know, you see up in verse seventeen. It says, "If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church." Okay, so suppose you have a gathering of two or three people or seven or 14 or whatever. Um, and you guys meet at some, you know, coffee shop or somebody's house or, or whatever. And you've decided this fits what it means to be a church. Okay. You decided that you said this, this counts. I don't have to go to church because this is a church. Is that who you tell it to when you do church discipline? You see, I would say is discipline part of your quote-unquote church who do you tell it to if there's three of you and one of you is in ongoing unrepentant sin who is it that the confronting brother tells it to once it reaches that point who do you tell it to is that the church okay now here's another question do you remove that brother or sister if they refuse to repent what's the process of being recognized as in in your church What's that process look like? Because clearly Jesus thinks that you can be put out in this passage that you quoted, my friend. How do you get put out? How do you get put out of your your, your Bible study? How do you get put out of your uh, little club uh, or your quote unquote church? If they say, you know, we don't do discipline and we don't recognize people in or out, I would say, okay, well, that's not a church then. Because clearly in Matthew 18, Jesus thinks that a church, and he uses that word, ecclesia. He's the one, okay, who uses the word ecclesia. If he thinks there should be in and out recognition, and that's part of what it means to be ecclesia, but you don't have that, are you an ecclesia then? Taking the 1 Corinthians 5. Paul has them tell 
excommunicate this brother from the church. He, he has them remove this man from the church. He says that there's a way to recognize in and out, even later in the chapter when he talks about, I told you not to associate with these kinds of immoral people. I meant in the church. There should be a behavior that's different inside the church than outside the church. There are people who are in, there are people who are out. And there's some way to recognize that. How is that recognized in your quote unquote church? Do you see? How is that done? But I have more questions. I have more. I have more. Baptism. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the ordinances, right? I'd bring up the ordinances. Let's say, brother, sister, can we agree that um, we are commanded to be baptized if we are disciples uh, from Matthew 28? Can we agree that our Lord commanded baptism in connection with discipleship? I'd imagine they'd say, we could agree on this, right? And you can talk about how, well, it looks like that baptism is the initiatory right into being added to the church, uh, both Catholic and local. Um, Baptism is something that the church does. We see this in Acts. We see this in in numerous places in the New Testament. Paul talks about baptizing the Corinthians when he came. Now, we see in Acts 2. I mean, this is like the first thing that happens after people are cut to the heart, right? They are cut to the heart, and they're like, what should we do? And, and Peter's like, you should repent, and you should be baptized. And then they repent, and they're baptized, and then what's the next thing you see? Them gathering together around the apostles' teaching, around the breaking of bread, sharing their stuff. You know, they are the church. So I'd ask, do you guys do, you guys do baptism? Do you guys have baptism in your or two or three gathered meeting? Um, who does it? You know, who, who does the baptizing? Where do you do it? If you don't have baptism, why don't you? Isn't isn't that mark? Isn't that a marker of the church? Um, do you guys make converts? If you make converts, uh, shouldn't they be baptized? Where would you do this? How would you do this? Shouldn't you do this if you're a church? Do you take the Lord's Supper? Um, can we, can we both agree that the Lord's Supper and baptism were ordained by our, our Lord, the same one who said, for we're two or three gathered together in my name, I'm there, not that's a church, the same Lord that said that, and then he instituted the Lord's Supper and baptism. Do you guys take the Lord's Supper? Um, maybe you take the first Corinthians 11 and be like, um. It seemed like they were guarding the table, or Paul thinks they should have guarded the table, that there are people who are abusing the Lord's Supper. Do you guard the table when you guys take the Lord's Supper? Um, How do you tell if someone is in or out, you know, like we talked about earlier? Uh, What about the, what about diversity? That would be another question I would ask. Um, In 1 Corinthians 12, we see a diversity of gifts, the body, right, the body imagery of what the church is interconnectedness but there is the diverse set of gifts there's different gifts that all work together for the building up of the body you know first corinthians 12 7 says that every christian has the holy spirit and thus has a spiritual gift given sovereignly by the spirit not chosen by the individual christian and so and that it's meant to be used for the edification of the body how do you edify the body uh do you have a diversity of gifts or do you all kind of have the same gift uh, 
does just three of you is that enough to um, have a diversity of gifts to edify the body and for the church to work the way that it was designed to work I have another question is um, what about diversity itself uh, shouldn't shouldn't the church be made up of people from all different walks of life my guess all right my guess is that this person who is saying my my coffee shop group or my Thursday night over wine and cats group or my group on the computer that we all meet through the Skype or whatever. My guess, I think I peaked the mic again. I'm sorry, guys. My guess would be that they all are like each other. And by that, I mean... Maybe around the same age group, maybe same gender, maybe same kind of hobbies. My guess would be that they're all pretty similar and that they really do not need the church in order to be gathering together. You know what I mean by that? Like diversity means that you and I would hang out with each other. And love each other unconditionally, edify each other, and be there for one another. But if we didn't have Jesus in common, we probably wouldn't be hanging out together. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, I listen to metal and hip-hop, and you listen to uh, country, God forbid, and you're 62, and I'm in my 30s. I have a beard, you're clean-shaven, you're a business professional, I'm a pastor. You know what I mean? And, like, we don't have anything in common at all. But we have Jesus in common, and that's enough, and that's what binds us. And so when the world looks in and sees us together, they're like, that's strange because it's otherworldly. You see what I'm saying? But if you have a group, let's say you have a group of nine people, okay? Nine people who you meet every Friday, okay? At your house, and you know, you have a, a little Bible study. Um, maybe you use some curriculum from somewhere, or you're studying some book, or whatever. Okay, but you're all 26 year old, you know, young professionals. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you're all white, and you're all just you wear suits to work every day, and you're hipsters at night. And you have a lot in common. Y'all listen to the same music. Y'all frequent the same stores and restaurants. You agree on pretty much everything. And we have our Bible study on Fridays. Like, nobody's going to look at that and be like, oh, man, that's otherworldly. They're going to go, yeah, those people would be hanging out. There's no diversity, you know? But, you know, according to Ephesians... Uh, we should be a mosaic, according to Revelation, that heaven is going to look like every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. And we should have heaven on earth by being diverse. We should have old. We should have young. We should have um, babies. We should have people who are um, in their 80s and 90s. You know, we, we should hear uh, babies cry, and we should see uh, have African Americans, and we should have white people and Hispanics, and you know what I mean? Like, we should have business professionals and plumbers, and we should have... Uh, People who are doctors and nurses and, and cops and with 
you know, people who are white collar and farmers or mechanics or all in the same church where people look and they go, this is weird. And we have arm in arm and we're saying, you know what? If it wasn't for Jesus, we probably wouldn't be hanging out with each other. We, we are natural enemies become brothers and sisters in Christ because of the blood of Christ. That diversity is missing a lot of times when we have these homogenous groups that we create for ourselves and grab Matthew 18, 20 and say, we're a church. What's that diversity? What's that lack of diversity get you? Because here's the thing. <laughs> you see the irony on this? If y'all look the same and y'all agree on everything already, y'all aren't going to be rebuking each other probably. Do you see what I'm saying? You're not going to be doing Matthew 18 discipline. Likely, okay? You're likely not doing that because you guys probably have the same sins anyway. And you probably all... You've both justified gossip is okay. You've justified drinking too much is okay. You've justified... um, your adultery is okay. You, you justified your pornography use is okay. You, you've justified all these things because you both have them in common. And you're not going to be rebuking each other because if you rebuke, th- this is how thin those kinds of friendships are. If you rebuke them, you might lose that friendship because it's based on commonality in the world. But if your commonality is in Christ and you rebuke them, Maybe you really do have my best interest in mind. Maybe I am in sin. And maybe because we're different, you could spot sins in my life that I am blind to. And those who are my friends based on age or hobby or common neighborhood or socioeconomic status wouldn't do. So let's move on. Okay. Um, I would ask about Titus 2. Also, Titus 2. Uh, it's a famous passage that talks about the older ladies who are setting an example for the younger ladies. And um, this goes into diversity too. older men who are setting an example for uh, younger men and the older men are discipling the younger men and the uh, older women are discipling the younger women. This is important part of the church. If you have a church and I hate what uh, it, it's hard to see this um, and it, it grieves me when I see you know, you have a church who it's just it's just young people, like only young people. Uh, and I'm like, where are you getting discipled from? Uh, who is setting an example for you? Who is, you know, somebody who's been married for 50 years and can can speak into your young couple life and who knows well those struggles that you're going through now and that seem earth shattering but they've been through it and they weather the storm and they could give you advice the the parents who who discipled uh, their children into adulthood who are faithful followers of jesus uh, tell me how to raise kids help me raise kids um same with uh you know uh, Younger saints need older saints in order to be discipled by them. They, they need mature, and I mean that not in just age, uh, because age doesn't automatically equal ma- maturity in Christ. They need mature people in Christ who are older, who can disciple them, who will be obedient to Titus 2. Um, 
but if you have a church who's just a bunch of young people, your little weird group on on Friday nights, um, that's not happening. You're disobeying Titus too. You're not that dope that you don't need somebody to disciple you. You know what I'm saying? And then, uh, you know, if your group is just a bunch of old people, um, there's no babies crying. Uh, there's no toddlers running to and fro throughout the land because you have no young people. Um, your church is your, ch- and again, quotes, you can't see me because this is radio, not TV, is dying. If there's no young people, it's just you and your friends of similar elderly advanced age. Uh, that church, church quote, will not last long. Where's the diversity if it's just six or seven of you? You know what I'm saying? This is bad news. And then lastly, a question I would ask, and this kind of goes along with the ordinances. Um, okay, so in the Bible, there's baptism in the Lord's Supper. This is uh, given to us by the Lord. Um, there's also offices. And what we see is elders or, and, and you know, there's several words used in the New Testament for the same office. Um, you have elders, which is the most common word. But uh, pastor, bishop, overseer, those are all the same office, okay? You have these, you see these um, frequently. They're in Acts, they're in Timothy, Titus, things like this. And you see deacons, which are set up, commonly thought of in Acts 6. And then there's qualifications in Timothy and Titus as well. Here's my question. Also in Philippians 1, uh, the elders and deacons are addressed to the church in the greeting to the church. And so uh, I'd be like, hey, brother, you see that there's elders and deacons in here? You see in Ephesians 4, for example, the church was given pastor shepherds to uh, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, does your quote unquote church have elders and deacons? Do they have the officers? Um and how do you recognize who those are? Do they qual- Do they meet the biblical qualifications? Are you sure that they meet the biblical qualifications? Do you have a vote in the church, or you know, do you have congregationalism that that decides these matters? Um, because you know, I think you see congregationalism in Matthew eighteen and First Corinthians six, right? It's it's not the pastors and elders who ultimately decide the fate of this person. In fact, they're not mentioned at all in those passages. It's the church who has to ultimately decide it. The church gathers. And renders a judgment. That's congregationalism, right? Do you have that in your church? And then does your your quote-unquote church, your little weird group where uh, two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, elect elders and deacons? Do they do that or do they not? Do you guys see? So, I mean, the questions that we're asking, they're kind of similar to what we've asked before on these topics, but they're also... Uh, somewhat different and we see just like the other objections that really um, under some scrutiny um, this falls pretty well short of what we think we're doing and again a lot of these objections some of them are are valid and some of them make a point because like objection one and objection two it was like a yes or yes and yes and no right you don't need to be a christian or (laughs) you don't need the church in order to be a christian right but you need it to be an obedient one. And so if you're a disobedient Christian, what does that say? Um, and then, so it's yes and no. And then with the objection, the church is not a billion people. It's like, yeah, that's true. 
the the build the building is not the church. It's you know the people who gather. They happen to gather in the building, but this is a thinly veiled reason, excuse to not be part of a church. Where else would you have them go? Right? They assemble there. That's not the point. The point is not the brick and mortar. It's the people. Um, and so again, with this, we are redefining church. We are inserting something, a meaning into that passage, Matthew 18, 20. That's just, it's not there. Um, let's just, I, I wish we would just admit with these things. I just don't want to go to church, you know? Um, and this one I think might be one of the more dangerous ones just because it's using the Bible and it sounds very spiritual, but um, it breaks down pretty easily. Um, it's bad ecclesiology. It, it breaks down pretty easily with just some scrutiny and some logic added in and then considering the context. So if you speak to somebody who uses argument, uh, do so, engage them with love and understanding. Um, they may be very genuine that they think this is right. Um, and so... You want to help them think biblically and logically uh, through this thing. So I hope those questions help you to do that. All right. It's time for... Quote of the week. Um, this is coming from... I quoted him earlier. Uh, a book. It's a little tiny book. It's not very big at all. It's from Crossway. It's pretty good, you guys. And I say that as somebody who's only read about half of it. Uh, it's about 157 pages, a little tiny book called The Local Church, What It Is and Why It Matters for Every Christian. And come to think of it, Crossway should be sponsoring me as well because I plug their books all the time. But this is by one gentleman, Edward W. Clink Third, Guy's PhD from University of St. Andrews, which is very swanky. And um, this quote comes from that book. Here it goes. And again, he's speaking in the context of the Matthew 18, 20. Matthew 18, 20 must be properly understood. It is teaching about what the church does, not what the church is. None of this is to deny that God works in personal relationships in any gathering between brothers and sisters in Christ. And even when Christians gather together over coffee. It is simply to say that such gatherings, no matter how fruitful for discipleship and fellowship, are not by definition a gathering that can properly, biblically be called church. They are not the gathering. They are, rather, symptoms of the life of the church, relationships and sub-gatherings that flow out of the church, but not technically church in and of themselves. The present-day shift from going to church to being church too easily leads to a category mistake. The church is a sacred, God-facilitated gathering that cannot be reproduced in or replaced by alternate forms of Christian community. End quote. That's another good in. It's a good in. Uh, and pick that book up, by the way. Thank you again, as always, for tuning in to the Bearded Ecclesiologian podcast, episode number 16. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do. And I would love to hear from you 
if you have topic suggestions, if you, hey, you might have listened to this whole episode and been like, handsome, bearded man, I disagree. And so, tell me. I want to hear it. Let's engage. Let's talk about it. I don't know why my voice uh, got that high. But um, I'd love, if you got topic suggestions, if you know objections um, that you've heard that you want me to address, man, I'd love to hear from you. Um, two ways you get it to me, show notes. Um, there's a link there. You could send me an audio file, uh, or you go to kvpaxton.com. There's a contact link there. You can fill that out. That'll get to me. Um, and as always do your boy to solid subscribe, give the podcast five stars, tell your homies, tune into future episodes where we cover all things church. You know why? Because we need more teaching about the church. Not less. Thank you again, as always. See you next time where we talk about more about the church. See you then.